Welcome to the Calming Ground Podcast. I'm your host, Elizabeth Minton, psychotherapist and mindfulness coach. This podcast is designed to offer you inspiration, wisdom, and actionable steps to support you to nurture your inner light. had a great time interviewing Courtney Edwards, a former psychotherapist turned behavioral health coach. Courtney is the owner of Alchemy Coaching and the host of the Pragmatic Alchemy podcast. Courtney blends her background in psychology and counseling with a practical framework of coaching to help people find more mindful well-being in their everyday life. I particularly appreciate Courtney's way of describing the difference between guilt and shame and the insight she offers to have a more full and compassionate life. Enjoy. So I first, I just want to thank you for being here with me thank today. You. Yeah, I really I'm excited to be here today. So uh, I appreciate the uh, the ability to chat with you. Yeah, likewise. And I always start with the same question. And that is that I think a lot of times our own journeys leads us into this work. And so I wonder if you can speak to both what is it that you're that you do? Mm -hmm. And then also what has your journey been like to get here? Yeah. So I am adjunct professor at a state university here in New York, and I teach counselors in training. So they're going to be mental health and school counselors. And we just talked about that exact point yesterday in class, which is most of us end up in this field because of our own stuff that we've lived through our our own experiences. And I, I truly believe that folks who have struggled are often the first to reach out a hand and say, let me help you back <laughs> because I know what that feels like. And so, yeah, so my name is Courtney Edwards. I am a former slash recovering psychotherapist. Uh, and I have a feeling the whys behind that will probably show up later in this conversation. Um, but I am a trained counselor. I've been a psychotherapist, um, but I'm now a, a coach. So I do behavioral health, life and relationship coaching uh, here in the Hudson Valley region of New York. Um, as I mentioned, I am an adjunct professor for counselor education and a podcast podcast host in my own right, uh, Pragmatic Alchemy Podcast. People can find that wherever they listen to podcasts. Um, and I'm also a wife um, for the second time. Um, so when we talk about grace and compassion, we're going to talk a little bit about that journey, I think. Uh, I have two kids and a dog and some cats. I like to practice yoga and read and I collect books and dresses as a hobby. Books and dresses. Yes. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> that's where all of my money seems to go so I have decided that I'm just going to reframe that as a hobby instead of feeling bad about my spending habits that's which maybe is a quick preview of my my thoughts about guilt and grace and compassion and how we support ourselves part of it is reframing it because we're probably telling ourselves a story that casts us into a, a more negative light than is probably factually accurate. So I like to reframe things. Um, and so I don't buy too many clothes. 
I have a hobby. It's collecting dresses. <laughs> <laughs> that is great. And I am curious about something. So you're teaching in the university. Yeah. Counselors. Yes. As you have kind of, it sounds like moved from counseling yourself. Is that true? Yes, it is true. And it makes me laugh every time. And I'm always like, I can't believe they let me do this. Um, but yeah, they let me do it, which is fantastic. And I'm very, very fortunate. Um, one of the courses that I have taught for the last several years is psychopathology. And a huge part of why I moved out of the field of psychotherapy and into coaching is because I believe in a more deep pathologized framework of why people struggle. I don't necessarily want to call it a disease or a disorder, slap some label on it and say, this is what's wrong with you. According to the DSM, you know, which is just a book in the world that attempts to quantify the human experience. And I just don't know that that's true. And so I've said to my chair a few times, I think it's very ironic that you let me teach psychopathology I don't even know that I necessarily believe that pathology is a real thing. I think it's a social construct in many ways. And she always said, it lets me know that that's exactly why she lets me teach psychopathology Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, because, you know, it's a nice blending, but sort of a, not so much my personal story, but more of a a professional perspective is prior to state licensure um, for mental health counselors, which, um, The very first state license for mental health was in Virginia in 1976, if my uh, memory is accurate right now. Um, But within the last 10 to 20 years, most states have added a state license for mental health counselors. Um, Prior to licensure, the field of counseling was different than the field of psychology and social work and psychiatry in that it was oriented around a wellness model which basically was stating that human beings over the course of their lives are going to see disruptions in their full potential of development. And that at that point, they just might need a little bit of extra support to kind of get past that hump. But then they're fine. That that by nature, humans are fine. Psychologists tend to have a medical model framework that there's something pathologized within the self that needs to be fixed. And social workers tend to look at the environmental Um, So it's about a systems approach or something in the system that's causing distress within the human. But counseling was really just this very positive, optimistic, wellness-oriented framework of development across the lifespan and that just sometimes there were these little hiccups and we needed help with that. And that was what I bought into. That was what I wanted to do. And that when I was in grad school is when the state of New York passed the licensure exam or the licensure bill. And so now counselors could become licensed, which is great because now you can accept insurance and you can work in hospitals and agencies and it opens up career opportunities and financial opportunities for counselors. And it resulted in a more pathologized model because in order to reimburse for insurance, you need to give a diagnosis. And then it just became more aligned with kind of the medical model, medical model, a medical model and um, psychology, more, more aligned with the field of psychology. And so that was never really what I wanted to do at all, because I do truly believe that we're all, we're fine and the world is just kind of fucked up and life happens. And sometimes we get stuck and we need to get unstuck, which is the motto or the tagline of my coaching practice, get Mm -hmm. unstuck. Because I think that that's all, all that we're calling pathology, in my opinion, is really just kind of a, a reasonable response to what's going on around us. 
Okay. So I want to just come to our, the sort of theme or topic of today's podcast episode. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that is guilt. So I'm wondering when you think of guilt <laughs> in a non-pathologizing way. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. You think of what comes up for you. My whole body wants to turn inside. I want to close up tight like the armadillo and hide from the world because my early experiences with guilt just really kind of got it a little bit uh, too embedded with the concept of shame. Mm-hmm. And I didn't come up with that distinction all on my own. That largely has come through the lens of Brene Brown's work on guilt and shame and empathy and belonging and all the beautiful work she does. Um, but the first time I ever heard her explain the difference between guilt and shame, it just felt like something broke open inside of me because I don't think as an early human, <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know how to finish that sentence, when I was younger, I didn't really know the difference between guilt and shame. And so she explains it very beautifully as guilt is a, I've done something wrong and shame more of an experience of I am wrong. Mm -hmm. There's something within me, intrinsically within me. And so there's still some kind of, you know, echoes of that (laughs) in my own framework where I, I, I kind of think about guilt and, and I remember that very enclosed protective feeling of wanting to um, hide myself from the whole world because I saw myself as so tragically flawed that it was beyond redemption. So my uh, relationship with guilt is growing. Mm. To be able to see it as more, almost now as a, a social and a cognitive experience, an intensely internal experience, if that makes sense. Yeah, actually, can you speak to that a little bit more? I'm curious, like the cognitive experience. So guilt to me now is often a thought. So it's not that embodied, like the shame feeling I had was so visceral that I, I literally would feel like I was closing up like an armadillo, I was protecting myself, I was hiding myself, I wasn't being vulnerable, I wasn't able to truly deeply connect with others because I was always trying to hide these damaged, broken, no good parts of myself I didn't want people to see, where now when I'm experiencing guilt, I can recognize it of this is a thought, maybe it's a belief, you know, if it's a, if it's a persistent thought, we can probably call it a belief, but that it's it's often happening in my head, not like a, that I'm making it up, but that it, it it is a cognitive process and that it is very often coming through the lens of societal expectations and where I might perceive that I'm falling short of those expectations. Mm-hmm. And so I'm able to kind of see now guilt as a more it's external to me. It's not, it's not that brokenness inside. It's more just, well, maybe that was a social faux pas or the timing of this is, is excellent because I actually about an hour ago was in therapy. So (laughs) this is all kind of actually very top of mind (laughs) um, because one of the things we were talking about is I am approaching the 10 year anniversary of my first marriage ending. And I was the one that moved out and I had small children at the time. And all these years later, I can still feel the shame that I experienced at that time, but I'm able now to kind of work through it in more of a guilt way. When I dif- when I can differentiate that, what I'm recognizing is that guilt, because I can look back now, I've got 10 years experience to look back and be like, I've created a great life for my kids. They have a wonderful, healthy, robust mother that I don't know that they would have had 
at that first phase of my life, I wasn't this person then, right? I had to go through all that to become who I am now. And and I think my kids benefit from that. I, we have a beautiful family. They have step siblings. Like it just, everything has really worked out just fine. And so I can see that guilt now through the lens of, oh, but I did a thing that a mom isn't supposed to do. And so I'm able to now pick apart that story and say, well, who said that a mom isn't supposed to fight for herself? Who said that a mom isn't supposed to put herself in a position where she can feel whole and healthy and and work through whatever it is that was, you know, causing all the challenges that led to that divorce in the first place? Am I really doing anything? Did I really do anything wrong? Or is it just that we have a society that tells moms, you know, we should keep it together for the kids? In retrospect, I'm like, oh, that would have been a terrible idea. And so that's sort of an example of, of what I mean by making it more of now a cognitive. I can recognize that this is just a story that I'm telling myself, that moms don't do that. And that that then created an emotional response. Yes, I so appreciate that example. And I, I resonate because I too have a blended family. I have mm-hmm. children. And I was the one that decided that this was this was it. I needed yeah. to change. And the courage and, you know, sometimes, you know, terror and feelings of falling apart that can happen when you make that kind of shift. Right? Absolutely. And, yeah. And all of the society messages around. Yep. You did what? <laughs> yeah. Even though I can see now I, I did the very best thing, you know, Absolutely. and it was hard and it was painful and we all struggled. But I truly believe that we are all mm-hmm. in better places than we were 10 years ago. So, yes. And just to, and also the importance of choosing our wellness as, mm-hmm. you know, even an ability to be there more present for our kids, at least for me, I, you know, my ability to be present with my kids in a different, fuller, more embodied way grew exponentially. 100%. I agree. So this kind of segues into my next question, which is around, you've a little bit answered it, but I'm curious <laughs> if anything else comes up and if not, it's fine, but around when you experience the barriers, maybe the stuckness mm-hmm. right, around the guilt that can show up, mm-hmm. what helps you find movement? What helps you overcome that? Another piece that I have adopted from Brene Brown's brilliance is that, and, and here I, I will blur the lines a little bit because she specifically uses the word shame, but I think that this can apply to guilt as well. But she says, shame cannot survive being spoken out loud. And so for me, one of the big things when I'm really struggling with something I feel guilty about is just to speak it to somebody that I trust and feel safe with to just say, I'm really having a hard time with this. I I, I feel like I messed up. I, I, I don't, I'm not proud of that behavior. I, you know, I, I feel like I made a massive mistake here and just kind of being able to talk it through and say it, own it, <laughs> you know, and, and sometimes get reassurance that maybe I'm making it worse in my head or, you know, whatever whatever dynamics might be happening there, but really just to kind of share it out loud and not let it become a secret. Because I think that that's when guilt becomes shame is when we try to hide it and we're, and then we're hiding parts of ourselves and we lose our ability to be vulnerable and and connect. I also work as a mindfulness 
um, educator and a meditation coach and have adopted through that framework um, the work of Kristen Neff and Chris Germer. They have a book called Mindful Self-Compassion with a companion workbook that I love. So I do try to reframe, um, be very careful about my language and and really look at it through that lens of self-compassion. One of the models that I really love is, you know, to address yourself or the behaviors that you're experiencing like you would address a child, Um, because very often the stuff that's coming up is old, wounded stuff. You know, an example might be, and if I'm interacting with my kids and I lose my patience, to understand that maybe that that loss of patience is coming from a place of fear or, you know, a place of powerlessness. And to understand that when that arises, it's often that child within us that maybe felt scared or felt powerless. And so we that impulsive behavior kind of lashes out and we behave in ways that we're like, well, I wouldn't act like that as a 48-year-old mom, but probably my five-year-old self would have acted like that. And so then I try to turn that inner narrative around to kind of be like, well, what was going on there? And what did you need? And how can I support you? Because obviously you didn't you didn't want to behave that way, but you were doing the best you could. But can we, you know, what can we do to make it better next time. And and really turning that lens of self-compassion inward um, can be incredibly powerful um, mm. and just the way we relate to ourselves. Absolutely. How did you get here? I mean, was this through reading their work or kind of what was, were you all, did you always have a kernel of like this kind of compassion? <laughs> so, yeah. What? what no. Yeah. What was, <laughs> what was your path like here? Yeah. So, I mean, to be fully transparent, I actually struggled a lot with suicidal ideation and attempts um, late adolescence into early adulthood. I mean, the shame was that corrosive. Like I I just thought the whole world would be a little bit better off if I wasn't a part of it. Um, So no, there was that little kernel was not always there for me. And I think a lot of it came from exposure to some of these concepts, the folks that I just mentioned. Um, But the idea of relating to myself like I would a child actually came spontaneously. I was on a meditation retreat uh, and I was just doing a silent meditation in a group. Like It it wasn't a a lead meditation. We were all silently meditating, but there were a lot of other people in the room, um, which I look back now and, and laugh because... I walked out of that room, just ugly cry, like something had just opened up. And, um, but what had happened is I was in the meditation and I was remembering just an experience I had had as a kid that had a lot of shame wrapped around it. And so I'm in the meditation and I'm visualizing myself on this summer afternoon and I'm riding my bike because I can remember the memory so clearly. And I, as I am now approached that 10 year old version of myself. And I just had this moment of clarity of like, she just needs a hug. She just needs to know she's okay, that she's fine. She didn't do anything wrong. She's all right. And she just needs somebody to to sit with her and put an arm around her and, and, and hold her. And so I kind of visualized that. And, and it was, you know, as if 35 years of, of scarring just sort of evaporated, but but it was funny in retrospect because I'm in this room of strangers in a silent meditation. I mean, I, there's like snot everywhere. I'm like just crying harder than I've ever cried in my entire life. But it really did open up the door of like, oh, I can actually now harness this and I can now use this experience 
when I'm struggling, you know, and, and one of the phrases that's really common in self-compassion work is to speak to yourself like you would a friend. Um, but I like to say, speak to yourself like you would a small child, because so often the things that we're doing that we're not proud of are rooted in those childhood wounds. And so talk to your inner little kid um, because she or he probably needs just a hug. Mm-hmm. Like, honestly, I think that's what it comes down to. of the time is they just need to know it's okay. Yeah, absolutely. Ready to strengthen your self-care practice? I have a free guide for you to help you identify the areas in your life where you need the most replenishment and learn the next steps you can take to feel more relaxed and restored. To get the guide, go to www.thecalmingground forward slash opt hyphen in. The link is in the show notes so that you can live the ease-filled life you dream of. And I imagine that as you practice that, the awareness of when you're not being kind gets more pronounced. Is that right? Yeah, it is. It is. And I, I had mentioned a little bit ago, I'm also really mindful of the language I use, right? And so really thinking about that the, the voice of the inner critic and what is the language of the inner critic, because I think very often it can be extremely rude and harsh language, lots of name calling and blaming. And, and if I notice that my thoughts are going in that direction, that's a pretty big cue for me that I need to pause and, and kind of reflect on what, what is actually happening. And I find that that comes up sometimes, even in areas that aren't guilt and shame related, but just whenever we're struggling, you know, when I was purely working as a psychotherapist, I used a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy, which is focused on the way our thoughts influence our behaviors and our emotions. And so, you know, this semester I, I, I teach, I had just a, I don't know, I just had a student that decided they hated me immediately, <laughs> which, mm-hmm. I'm, you know, people pleaser, I like to be liked. Um, and so I remember really struggling. It's like, this, I don't like the way this feels. This sucks. Like I was so anxious. I didn't sleep for like a week. I kept, you know, reaching out to my department chair being like, I don't know what to do. And then at one point I was like, all right, I'm going to apply a little CBT to this. Like, what would I say to a client? And then I was like, well, I would remind the client that you're not here to make friends. You're here to educate future counselors and you're not here to be universally liked. It's okay if somebody doesn't like you. And these are all really sound CBT practices, right? Reframing the narrative so that you can reduce your own distress by, by changing the way you're reacting to the situation. And so I'm doing that and I'm like, this isn't helping. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so I I remember I was driving to campus one day to teach and I was like, well, what if I just remind myself that it's okay, that this hurts my feelings, that it's okay to feel sad that somebody doesn't like you, that it's okay to want people to like you. And that to me was kind of that same root of, right? Like this is just an experience that you're having and it's totally fine that you're having it. And you don't have to let the desire to be liked guide your behavior, right? Like I can still make sound ethical professional choices and hold boundaries and do my job effectively. And I can honor and care for that little inside voice. that's like, but this sucks. 
it sucks that this person doesn't like me. It hurts my feelings. You know, and so I think that that's a little bit off the topic of, of what you're talking about, but I think it is very much the same mental process of just like, just be nice, be kind, be gentle, be loving, because whatever's going on inside of you is not, it's not wrong or bad. It is just the experience that you're having in that moment. Yes. And I really appreciate that. I'm glad you bring that up because I think it can be so hard because guilt can cause, and I'll speak for myself, but it can cause me to feel somehow like I'm doing, I'm doing something wrong. Like there's something right. And to offer the permission to not necessarily, maybe, maybe there's a correction that's needed, but to offer the permission to, to first be with, you Mm -hmm. know, and then decide, like, how do I want to move from here? Do I, you know? Yeah. And for me, as a, a a lifelong people pleaser, that moment of clarity of like, I don't have to behave different. I don't have to contort myself into a more pleasing shape. I can tend to my inner hurt feelings and stand in my own truth simultaneously. Yeah. I was not ever able to do that before. If I wanted somebody's approval, if I wanted to be included or accepted, it was what shape do you need me to take? I can do that for you. And so then I had no personal integrity, which yeah. then makes you need that approval more, yeah. which then it just becomes like the cycle and you can't ever break it. And so just being able to hold those two things is true is I can recognize that this hurts my feelings, that I do have a desire to be liked and approved of, and I can act in the way that I know is actually the right way to act. They don't need to inform one another. Yes, absolutely. Right on. So that's hard to do though. Oh, it is so hard to do. Yeah. So if anybody's listening, it's like, what? I'm like, oh, it takes work and practice and self-trust and, and a good support system. (laughs) And I'm appreciating too, that this came to you, this ability, it sounds like, or act that then you can bring into your life, um, in a meditation Mm -hmm. retreat. And and I, and I am, I really resonate with that because I think that, and you know, I'm, psychotherapist as a, you know, in the therapy room, there's so much we can do, but there's so, there's, there's this element of the, the grounding, the centeredness, Mm -hmm. the mindfulness, the be being with us and where we are right now, however that is, that is so powerful. I agree. Yeah. It's changed my life honestly, getting into meditation and, and living with more mindfulness. I mentioned when I was a therapist, I I worked from a CBT framework and I do think there's a, a lot of parallels between CBT and mindfulness because they're both about the idea of it's not really what happens to you as much as it's about your reaction to what yes. happens to you. Absolutely. Um, so there's some there's some parallels there that I find really attractive. And when I teach meditation and mindfulness, I will often explain it that, you know, in between, we have that stimulus response framework. The thing happens, you have a, a reaction to it. And that mindfulness helps us make that space between the stimulus and response broader and deeper so that then we can actually think about How do I want to react to this? Do I even need to react to this? And it can help us break those kind of habitual automatic reactions, you know, and those, those are tricky because they're called automatic thoughts for a reason. Mm -hmm. Um, But the, the practice of mindfulness can be really helpful in, in just making a little bit more space there. The other thing I really love about it is 
Um, meditation is not a practice that can be perfected or mastered. Mm-hmm. Right? We never get it right. Mm-hmm. And I, as a people pleaser, <laughs> was often very consumed with getting it right. Mm-hmm. And so I love that I've, uh, you know, found this thing that is literally a practice every day. It is just a practice because I'm never going to master it. Our brains are not cooperative in that particular space. And so it's been really helpful for me to learn that showing up is good enough. The effort is good enough. That it doesn't have to be the most perfect, blissed out, zenful sit in the history, you know, in the 5,000 year history of meditation. I'm not going to be the best meditator. Mm-hmm. And that has actually been liberating in a way that that very few other experiences of my life ever were, that I could just lower that threshold of expectation to say, well, I'm here, I'm sitting, I'm making the effort. That is the whole purpose. It's not about, did I clear my mind? Did I achieve enlightenment? Did I see nirvana? None of that. None of that matters. I came to my seat and I closed my eyes and I turned inward for just a minute. And so empowering too, I would imagine. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, once you can, well, for me, I'll speak for myself. Once I was able to um, remove the facade of perfectionism, Mm -hmm. I was able to just be authentic. And it it makes me think um, in the book, East of Eden, um, Steinbeck writes, now that you don't have to be perfect, you can be good. And that to me is is part of what I have found in a meditation practice is I don't, there's no such thing as perfect. And once I could let that go, then I could just be good. And that is so freeing. Oh, I love it. So in your work as a coach, mm-hmm. is, are these things that you touch on? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Every day. Uh-huh. <laughs> this and is so you... much of my work. <laughs> What's that? This is so much of my work. <laughs> yes, I imagine. So what is it that you find really helps people or has helped people when they're experiencing some stuckness around this? I I do think that the narrative reframe is a huge part of it. And the self-compassion piece, you know, really tend to go hand in hand. I I remember I was um, having a a text conversation with a friend and she said something and then I kind of turned it on its ear a little bit and sent it back. And she's like, that's such a powerful reframe. And I was like, that's literally my job Mm -hmm. (laughs) is to help people see things through a different lens. And that could be combating their inner critic. It could be combating socialization. It could be combating gender norms, you know, whatever the external narrative is of how we should be. I'm I'm very often helping people confront their shoulds um, and to just let them be, you know, just exist. Um, and then I do fold in a lot of self-compassion because I do think um, that that's a really powerful foundation when we can be kinder to ourselves is how we can let ourselves off the hook from those shoulds. And so I utilize a lot of different avenues towards that. Clients of mine know that we might talk about astrology, we might talk about Enneagram, we might talk about Myers-Briggs codes. And and all of those to me are really powerful ways of holding up a mirror Mm -hmm. to see ourselves through a lens of neutrality, right? So I am an Aquarius and Aquariuses tend to be a little flighty. We tend to be up in the air all the time. And that 
can be weaponized until you just look at it as like, well, that's just a trait. That's just a trait I have. It doesn't define who I am. And there's nothing really necessarily wrong with it. It's just a thing about me. Um, And I find that to be really, really helpful to just give folks a way to look at themselves with some level of neutrality. If it's neither good nor bad, it just is. And then, and then can we be kinder to ourselves when we're no longer, instead of holding up a mirror, holding up a concept of should. Yes. Which comes back, I wonder, to what you talked about in terms of integrity, right? When, when, we're, when we're shooting on ourselves, when we're yes, we're be... shooting all over ourselves. Yes, <laughs> yes. That when yeah. we allow ourselves that mirror, that check in on some level, maybe. Yep. Yeah, I agree. I yeah. one of my very early podcast episodes before I started bringing on guests, I, I had done a bunch just on my own, and and one of them is titled "Fake Nice." And it's maybe the fifth or sixth episode I ever put out. And it's about that. When I was married to my first husband, we were out running errands one day and I greeted the cashier or the bagger at the grocery store or something. And we were leaving and he's like, well, he's like, you know, like, but you're kind of fake nice. And I was like, what did you just, I was so offended, so offended. And I was like, no, I'm nice to everybody. Like, I can't believe you would say that. Much later after our separation, as I'm finding myself and I'm becoming more secure in myself and becoming more aligned with my integrity, I started to think about the difference between being nice and being kind and the ways that those, like niceness is often very performative because it is about the people pleasing. And I think for folks who are socialized female, this is a a particular concern because we're supposed to be pleasant. We're supposed to smile. We're supposed to not take up too much space or be too loud. And all of that falls under the umbrella of being nice. And you can be kind and be boundaried and take absolutely no shit and be kind. And so much later, (laughs) you know, I had this epiphany of, I was like, Oh, he was actually kind of right because my niceness was often geared towards acceptance and being approved of. It was very important to me to be approved of. And I have now moved more into a framework of I I really do aspire to be kind, but that might not always be nice, you know, and and then that's going to be okay. But to your point, I, I feel much more aligned in my own integrity. You know, I've moved into a place of not everybody is going to like me. That's maybe going to hurt my feelings, but I can still act in accordance with what I know is the correct way to act. And what I'm also thinking as I hear you is, and I wonder if this will resonate or not, but with for me in my experience, when I am allowing myself to that kindness, and I love that distinction. I love the way you described that, the distinction between kind and nice. When I'm really allowing that kindness, I could be more open to my, for example, my you know best girlfriend. I really want to hang out. I invite her to such and such. She says no. And I see it as an act of trusting me and, mm-hmm. you know, and authenticity in herself. And then I thank her, you know, like, yes. Yeah. Cause that's an honor, right? When yes. somebody can be their truest self with you. Yes. It's and what a gift that is. Even, yes. The nice pleaser. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah, no, I I do. That does resonate in both directions, both in my ability to be more authentic in my relationships, as well as when people offer that gift back to me. Mm, I love that. It's really powerful. 
So powerful. And I really, really appreciate it. It's such an important message. Yeah, it's it's really shifted the way I move through the world, you know, mm-hmm. on a very profound level. And and is so in so many ways so counterculture for us. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. 100%, particularly as I mentioned for for girls and women who have been told, you know, be nice, smile, make them like you. Ah, oh, that's great. When you think about what offers you a deep sense of peace, balance, what comes up? Oh, my dog. <laughs> I don't know what that was just the first thing. I just like snuggling with her. I often will say she's my co-regulation buddy, right? So we just, <laughs> we're both anxious beings moving through the world. And so we like to just cuddle and be close to each other. But I think on a, a broader sense, you know, another kind of revelation that I had in the time after my divorce, as I was kind of going through, if we want to call it a reawakening, maybe a first time. I don't know if I was awake at all ever before. (laughs) It could be an awakening or reawakening, whatever we want to call it. But coming to a a bit of a realization of the difference to me in my perception of happiness versus completeness. And that I, as a young person, was always aspiring for happiness. Thought happiness was the goal. And what I realized is it's actually a sense of completeness. A thing I, I see on like Instagram every once in a while that says the bird is not afraid of the branch beneath her breaking because she trusts in her ability to fly. And that is sort of when I say completeness, that's kind of what I mean by it, that that I feel aligned, I'm authentic, I'm genuine. I'm trusting of myself uh, and that that then creates the foundation through which I can relate to other people because now it's not, well, what happens if this ba- branch breaks? Well, I'm, it, I'll be all right. You know, it might suck. Like, I, you know, I'm not trying to like silver line anything. It, if my marriage ended today, I would be devastated. I'd be okay. And that I think is a profound mindset difference um, than how I moved through the first part of my life, which was so, so dependent on everything else around me. And so when I think about being really grounded and being really peaceful, it comes down to just sort of that own sense of my own self. I had mentioned earlier in the episode, I, I had therapy this morning and we were talking about the fact that it's coming up on the 10 year anniversary of my separation. And, and my therapist prompted me, she said, you know, picture her, what does she need? And I was surprised to say nothing because Mm -hmm. she's got herself, like she's fine. She's figuring out in that moment, like, you know, she's in this tiny little apartment. She probably needs a bigger place to live and maybe a bed, but, (laughs) but she's okay. You know, and that, that was a pretty profound recognition of just, you know, being able to see the difference of like, yeah, you know, it really is just about having that sense of your own truth and honoring it, knowing who you are and being like totally okay with it. Good, bad, and indifferent. I could go off on a whole other diatribe about self-confidence and self-esteem and the way it's packaged (laughs) because I think some of it is a little bit BS, but it comes down to that sense of like, you don't have to think you're perfect. You don't have to like be your own hype man. 
you don't have to gloss over your flaws, accept them as a part of the fabric from which you were woven. But it doesn't need to be your identity, good, bad, or otherwise. It all of it is just part of the package. Yes. Before we close, do you have any closing thoughts? Is there anything that maybe you want to speak about or that you're noticing kind of moving in you that you want to share before we pause? I don't know. I feel like I said everything that I would would want to say. Maybe just to really, really reiterate, you know, talk to yourself kindly. Really pay attention to the external messages. You know, whenever I have a client who's like, well, you know, I but I should, I should, I should. I'm like, whose voice is that? You know, ask with some curiosity, where is that message coming from? And is that even a message that I want to listen to? Because there's a really good chance that it might not be. And then you get to make a decision about how you want to respond and meditate. I don't care if it's two minutes. If that's what you've got, that's what you've got. If silent meditation is not your jam, do a guided meditation. There are no rules to meditation, but I do believe that if we do it regularly, we can actually make some profound changes. We know from research that it can actually shift our neurology. It lowers blood pressure. It boosts our immune system. We sleep better. We're more patient. We, you know, see the lens through uh, or see the world through a lens of gratitude and curiosity and and balance. And it, there's just all good things that come from that. And so if you want to do something really kind for yourself, maybe try meditating for a couple of minutes most days. Thank you so much, Courtney. It has been so lovely to talk to you and, and refreshing. I mean, you you speak so articulately and succinctly about these these things so that they're just right there. Well, really thank you. Talking thank to you. you. Thanks for having me on. I, I've had a great time chatting with you too. Thank you so much for listening today. Subscribe to not miss another episode. And please share this podcast with a friend you think might benefit. I'd love to remind as many people as possible that they too can have the peace, calm, and rejuvenation that a little self-love and care can bring. And lastly, I'd love if you would leave me a review and let me know how I'm doing. See you next week.